So welcome to the ninth episode episode of the Joseph M. Leather podcast. Today I'm with Joe from JH Leather. She is a trained saddler by trade and has won a multitude of awards in saddlery. She was previously a member of the prestigious Society of Master Saddlers from 2013 until 2021. Her business, JH Leather, makes wallets, dog collars, leads and much more. She also has a YouTube channel where she has free tutorials and has 49,800 subscribers. She wants to get to 50,000 subscribers, so subscribe and tell a friend to subscribe. She also teaches classes and has a blog on her website to keep you up to date. Welcome, Joe. Hello. <laughs> uh, thanks for, for coming on. Um, That's all right. So, uh, how did you get into leather work? Yeah, so I was when I was 18, um, so I was sort of doing my A-levels, um, which is sort of like the thing you do after like your formal schooling here and uh, my friend sort of jokingly said to me one day why don't you become a saddler and then you can make my horse a saddle and it sort of went from there really so um she had like a little awkward pony so she was sort of just joking a bit because like having a little fat pony is quite hard to get saddles to fit but when she said because I didn't know what I wanted to do and I was like well I do like making stuff and you know I like horses so I'm like well I'll look into it and I managed to get a um I got a week's um like work experience with a saddler nearby and I really enjoyed it so I then started applying to do apprenticeships and sort of courses and stuff like that so I actually managed to get on the Cordwainers Diploma at Capel Manor College in Enfield and sort of went up there for my interview and I was lucky enough to get the last sort of place on that year's intake and so yeah that's where it started really um from there so was that a three-year apprenticeship or is that a four-year um yes yeah, so the course at Capel Manor was two-year full-time it was okay. like a college course so you'd still have like long holidays which was nice yeah and then after that well during that I would try and get sort of work experience in sort of the half terms and stuff and I managed to get a um, work experience with Lawrence Pearman of Stroud Saddlery. Mm-hmm. And I sort of really enjoyed it there. So I went back again later sort of in the year. And then once I'd finished my training at Capel Manor, I applied to Lawrence to do an apprenticeship with him. And he took me on. And I sort of then did a three-year apprenticeship with Lawrence and sort of Izzy and Emily who were also master saddlers who worked for him so they all sort of helped in my training and sort of stayed on for an extra year after that before moving up to Wales to set up on my own. Yeah so then would did that take off time from your apprenticeship when you did that? Yeah so because it was a college course they only classed it as one year towards my apprenticeship. Okay. Yep. So rather than doing it for four years, the apprenticeship, I did three years. Okay. Why, so you did that for four, three years and then you stayed on for an extra year and then you moved yeah. on. So what were you making by the end or by, by the, what was, what were you doing originally, I guess, when you first got into it and then by the end of your apprenticeship? Yeah. Okay. So from coming from the Capel Manor College side, Capel Manor, you learn new, like how to create new stuff straight away. Mm-hmm. So by the time I finished there, I had got my level two qualifications in bridle, saddle and harness. 
So for that, we'd make for like the bridal, you'd make a bridal and head collar and you would do like a timed exam on the day and made a saddle and we started to do some harness work as well. So by the time I started with Lawrence, I could do sort of a lot of the new stuff. And so sort of when I was with Lawrence, that was sort of continued, but also brought in the repair side of it because sort of at the college, we didn't really do much in the way of repairs. We did a few um, for like just part of the course. So it was more, yeah, sort of doing repairs and learning that side of it, as well as doing the more advanced bridal work. Sort of really. Yeah. Yeah. I love bridal work. Actually, um, Izzy Russell, um, worked for Lawrence and she um has her own bridal range so she, I'm not sure if you if it's that big in Australia but over here it's the IR bridal um so she designed that and then sort of sort of working sort of with her on that was really cool yeah. um so yeah I love working yeah. across the horse's nose where like you have the leather and it's like like folded underneath and it's like there's um it's like it's raised like above yeah yeah doing all the raise work i love all that like i think that's my favorite thing to do is like square raised i really like i really like the look of that once it's all done so it's got like a square filler yeah uh, and then the double raised i like doing as well so i'll put two sort of circular fillers in um, yeah. and it's like stitch line in between it so that looks pretty cool oh yeah because on your dog collars you have like the the two yeah the double one and then i can do a triple one as well like a wider yeah I was, if actually... the collar's wide enough <laughs> so when you do those stacks like that nose one where it's like stacked up is if you were doing a square raised sort of collar or nose band or whatever it was you're making the way i do it is i cut my strap usually three eighths wider than I need it to be. And then I'll split the very top off of it. Um, so you want it quite thin. So you'll split like the top layer off and then you glue it back down over a filler to oh. get like the square. So what's the filler? Uh, so I would use another bit of leather. So for example, oh, okay, I, yeah, yeah. okay. So hang on, I'm going to have to write down some sizes because I'm awful at maths. Um, so if I was making like a, so I'll do it easy. If I was making a one inch wide collar, I'd cut the strap one and three eighths inches wide and then the f sort of split it. So you've got the loose bit on top, which we're then going to stick down over a filler. So you want the filler uh, yeah. to be three eighths smaller than the width of your collar yeah so that you've got room for the the leather to then stick back down over it and you can put your stitching in so you'd have a five eight can you do that in yeah. millimeters because i five eight oh you see this seven. is where the saddlery thing comes in again so over here in the uk we do actually everything is in like millimeters and centimeters and all that until you start saddlery and then it's very old so it's all like oh we're going to do it in inches so um yeah i know what one one inch is it's yeah like <laughs> so do i <laughs> it's like 25 millimeters oh, um yeah, you get 25 something like that um yeah because i would like watch bands and all that when you so how far does that filler have to be from the stitch line 
Because I just say if you have a three millimeter, if yeah. your stitches in so, three millimeters in, oh, should it be like um, a one millimeter gap before it goes? So I do. Oh, see, I do everything in eighths, unfortunately. Um, so I would do my stitching at an eighth of an inch in from the edge. So you. Oh, hang on, I might need to get a converter. <laughs> <laughs> I am trying to teach myself millimeters, but like it's quite hard. So I think so. Three quarters is nineteen. Check my phone. And half for, inch uh... is about twelve. But then it's all the awkward ones in between, like three eighths. Five eighths. It's like what yeah. That? <laughs> okay, so three eighths is about nine See, to ten millimeters like shoemaking and saddle mate saddlery is like the pinnacle of leather craft i reckon like in my opinion like i just <laughs> I, mean, I would love to have a go at shoemaking that's for sure yeah but um yeah no that does look really interesting actually there's a company that i follow on instagram called i think it's crown northampton mm-hmm and some of their shoes that they make, they like make sort of like trainer, like leather trainer. They look like amazing. The boots. Um, I'm not too sure on the boots. I think they sort of focus more on like okay. sort of less like leather trainers, yeah. but they oh, look okay. so cool. Um, actually, why are you doing that? So, when you're when you're working with thick like bridal leather, does yeah. the pricking on teeth does that matter? Do they have to be quite far apart from each other? Like, could you use a um, nine inches, nine spaces per inch on like a eight millimeter yeah, leather? So or not? it doesn't really matter too much. So on bridal work, though, you would usually like traditionally stitch it in ten stitches per inch. Okay, so that's well, quite small. Yeah. Um, but I mean, if you look further back in time sort of like the Victorian sort of bridles, the real fancy ones would be stitched in like 14, 16. And I think that's down to the, look how much I can pay my bridal maker. I paid them to make this in 16 because it would take, obviously if you're stitching it in 16 or 14, it's going to take an awful lot longer to make. Yeah. So it would be more sort of prestige. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how true that is. That's just in my mind. It's like, if you can afford to pay someone to stitch your bridal work back then in yeah. that sort of size, it sort of was a bit more of a status symbol. Yeah. So it doesn't, it won't weaken the leather it, having like closer stitches. I mean, you'd have to be very careful about how tight you pull it. And I wouldn't want myself to stitch anything really smaller than a 10. The smallest I have stitched a bridal was in a 12. Um, and it just, it gets to the point then where you got to be really careful about how tight you pull it because obviously the leather between them is a bit thinner. So if yeah. you pull it too tight, that's just going to rip through. So you have to be a bit more careful with it. But like, I think stitching in ten would be okay. So if you're doing a belt, spot. like stitching a belt like through the loop and all that sort of stuff, you yeah, could, you could do a nine because I just I just like the tightest stitch. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's all personal taste, really. Okay. I mean, I generally stitch... So the stitch marker I have is actually in millimetres, and it's between a 7 and an 8. Yeah. And I really like that. If I didn't have that, I would be stitching in an 8, I think, because I'd like that. Yeah. Um, for just And I'd, I'd stitch in it for everything. Yeah. Because I just like the size of the stitch that I get from that. 
Yeah. What what thread do you use on horses? Because you wouldn't. So traditionally, it is linen. Really, that actually lasts. Um, yeah. So obviously, you do have to be a, a bit careful with it because yeah. um, obviously it's a natural material, so it can rot. So you do have to be aware of that. But I mean, traditionally, you would use that. You can use um, what you, we used to use when I was at Stroud was as a coarse spun polyester. Yeah. So it looks a lot like linen thread, but it's not, and it lasts obviously longer because it's not. Yeah. Um, natural, so it doesn't rot. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, you can use that, or I mean, for the dog collars now that I'm making, I'm actually using a wax polyester thread. Is that tiger thread? Uh, no, nope. I don't. I don't really. I don't. I don't like tiger thread because it's flat. So this is like a corded one. Yeah. So it, it's like still circle, I guess. Would <laughs> be it's a circle thread. Yeah. Um, and because I like that look, I don't. I don't like the flat tiger thread. Yeah, because I got some tiger thread recently for that dog collar and dog lead. And yeah. yeah. I noticed that it's like flat. It's like completely flat. Yeah, it's flat. Um, it's, it's so, I mean, when I was doing my saddle <laughs> in that, we would use it if we were going to sort of, if we were doing sort of putting new girth straps on and for lacing the saddles back together again, if we had done any work to them. Yeah. But for stitching, I like a corded thread. So the mm-hmm. one I'm actually using is... Um, I'm not too sure how to say it. I think it's Wexin. Um, I, I, I get it from a company called Pro... I don't know how to say this either. From Pro Altia Plus. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't know if I'm saying that right either, to be fair. Um, but yeah, so I get both my linen threads from them, from the Maisie Superfine range, and yeah. the Wexin threads I get from them as well. Because yeah. it's got so many colours in them. But for me, the, the selling point is that it's corded. Yeah. Is there, a, is there a benefit compared to corded and flat or not? I, I don't know, to be honest. I mean, for me, it's just what it looks like. And I don't yeah. like the look of it when it's flat, like the tiger thread. Yeah. But anything above that, I, I'm, I'm not too sure, to be honest. Yeah. And with, with those, when you are stitching the bridles, are you doing reverse pricking? Mm, how do you mean by that like using so irons on both sides yeah like charlie no. taught, charlie <laughs> charlie taught me reverse pricking and i've been doing it and i love it like you so you have like yeah. the, the right and then you do the left on the yeah side. no um traditionally or how i was taught we didn't know it would you'd stitch on whatever the outside layer would be what yeah. you were going to sort of stitch through and that was it how do you get it so straight? Because like, I've tried it and it's just like... Practice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a, it takes a lot of practice. And sort of the key was having like sort of a sharp all to help you. Because if you're forcing it through, then it only takes a little bit to be out. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed um, that because my all, like, you put it through and it's quite hard. And I was watching one of your videos and you're just like, thump, like, straight through, thump, straight yeah. through. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, a lot of it comes down to muscle memory as well. Yeah. And sort of when you are sort of, you know, sort of new to it, it is hard to push it through and you don't have, like, the muscles there because it's all weird muscles that you have yeah. to do it, like, especially in your hands and stuff, like, the one between your thumb and the finger next to it that that's gonna that's like that's my my biggest muscle i have um 
And uh, I don't know, I'm not sure what it's called, but that muscle um, yeah. will build up. And yeah. Uh, sort of, yeah, it's, it's one of those things. You, the more you do it, the easier it becomes. Yeah. Yeah, when I, um, when I got my left-handed pricking iron from Abby, because I got the little ones. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I remember I was, like, using the awl, and I was like, how do I use this also? And I remember you, I remember I saw, like, a video that you did where you were, like, showing stitching. And I remember, I was like, oh, like, J- um, JH Leather has, like, a video. So I, like, watched it. What's it, like, watched you do, like, two stitches just to see how you, you turn, like, you changed it over. I was like, yep, that's all I need. Like, yeah. <laughs> so it's such a nice little like you go from the the two fingers to the and you just ex- exchange them. Yeah, yeah. Like I mean, definitely. Is that of when you're starting out holding everything it's, it's, it is a bit of impossible. an issue. It's just like, but how do I do all this? My hands are full. Yeah, but I you know. do Eventually, it's like you just do it. And it's just like, woof, 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 well done. Yeah. Um. So what awards have you won in salary? Because I've... Um, <laughs> well, you probably I don't think... need to go through the... Actually, you can if yeah, you want. Yeah, I... <laughs> I don't really remember. Um, it was quite a while ago. Uh, so, yeah, so doing my training and the Society of Master Saddlers holds a national saddlery competition every year. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this year or last year it wasn't because of all that's going on. But, yeah, so they'll have an annual competition and it's held at the Worshipful Company of Saddlers in London. So it's a proper posh to-do place. It's really, it's a really interesting building to go to. Yeah. And so they'll run um, competitions and they'll have different course, like different levels that you can sort of do. And so when I was doing my training, we would do the Master and Apprentice was one that we like to do um, because that one of like you had like your trainer so your master saddler had to contribute as well mm-hmm. and if i do the trainee sort of bridle and saddle um i forgot what they're called classes as well and um yeah so we'd do that and so um for that izzy and i would enter because lawrence had another apprentice at the time so lauren and Lo- lauren and lawrence would enter master and apprentice and then myself and izzy and it was like a bit of a competition between us all so yeah yeah so that was good uh, so i've won a few times there and then in the final sort of year i guess um of my apprenticeship i think it was 2014 um i uh i did quite well and i i got the Worship, oh, what's the hang on what is the name i think it's the worshipful company of saddlers award i think it was that one and like you got a cup and it was also um that the main award for that was then given out at buckingham palace oh, wow. so i got to go there and met met princess anne she mm-hmm. uh gave me the award so that was oh that was a fun day yeah. so yeah so i get to do that and i also won the city and guilds lion award that year as well yeah so that's so. amazing so we so you had to make like a saddle or was it just like a it depends what the class was oh, okay, so yeah. for the the main sort of award the saddlers award it was based on your entries so if you entered like a few different classes you they would judge all your work together yeah and sort of do it on that 
So, yeah, so, I mean, because sort of doing the apprenticeship, you would make a whole, uh, like, a saddle and you'd do all the bridle modules and you'd make a whole set of harness as well. And so it was based on my level three saddle that I made and my level three bridle, I think, that I made, which was a double bridle. I think it was based on that one. And the master and apprentice class, which I've forgotten what it was for that year. Yeah. So... So when you were making those saddles, is it are you making those light saddles? Um, so it was one... like a traditional. It's built on a traditional saddle tree. Okay. Um, and so the ones that I made for my level three was a seventeen and a half inch, I think, just general GP saddle. Yeah. Sort of. So if someone came to you and said, "Can you make me a custom saddle to like fit me?" You'd be able to do it. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no so the saddle this is um yes yeah, so saddle making is actually very complicated so the saddles that we made for uh exams were based on patterns that we were had were given yeah um and you'd sort of make your own patterns from it and then make your saddle to that design to make a saddle for a horse it's a lot more complicated and it involves lots of saddle fitting which is something that i didn't do mm-hmm. and i didn't really want to do um, I was more interested in the craft, the making side of it, rather than sort of the saddle fitting, because that's like a whole separate sort of subject to go into, and it's a lot more complicated because you got to fit the saddle for the horse and the rider, and then make sure that everything's just right, because obviously you're going to be putting a lot of pressure through the horse's back if you get it wrong. So, no, if someone comes to me and asks me to make a saddle, I would say no. <laughs> It's, it's amazing. It's, it's such a. Is the like is the is it still a booming industry in England? Yeah, yeah. Especially oh, okay. so, the centre of the saddlery industry is Warsaw, um, sort of near Birmingham. That's sort of there's like massive industrial estates there, and they're just full of the big sort of brand names that you'd see in sort of British equestrianism. So yeah. like, they're all sort of pretty much on the same estate I think we went there once for like a um like a field trip type thing when we were at Cape Manor and they're they're all pretty close together a lot of them and so it's really cool though it's really interesting to see and like going around the proper like manufacturers where they have just like piece works you have some this like one person cutting out one thing yeah and, doing their just one job so that's quite interesting to see but yeah they're all sort of based there and it's all still going well as far as i know yeah that's it so and then you were but you were a member of the society of master saddlers is that is that sort of similar to like an electrician would like apply to be able to work as an electrician is that sort of similar to that um it's like a guild i'd say so i mean anyone if they wanted to could go and do it if they really wanted to just go and saddle fit they could do but the society of master saddlers is um like you have to have certain qualifications to be in there Mm -hmm. so they have sort of like a level that they want you to meet to allow you to be in the society and use their sort of branding and be part of the society of master saddlers it's more like a quality control thing i would say um, so that if you went out and you've got someone who 
was a society of master saddlers saddler you'd know that okay well they meet all these requirements rather than just getting sort of joe blogs who says that they can fit your saddle and you don't know <laughs> yeah okay so uh yeah because it, so is the guild because i remember i heard that guilds are they still a big thing in europe or not really because i remember i heard someone talk about shoemaking where like you will study at like all these different shoemakers and then you will have to present your product to like a guild committee so to speak mm-hmm. and they were sort of and it's sort of a way um, of keeping the the skill yeah i'm not too sure with that um i'm i don't know to be honest with that but i mean with saddlery if you were doing sort of the the route that i went down sort of the saddlery route then it is very much you've got the the actual sort of courses and the qualifications were put together with the society of master saddlers and city and guilds who is the like um the exam board yeah okay so they are closely linked together mm-hmm. um but i'm not i'm not too sure on yeah. other aspects of sort of leather craft okay in that respect so then how did jh leather come about from so well it started i'd always wanted to work for myself anyway okay and sort of going away and doing the apprenticeship and stuff like that was all part of learning getting the qualifications i needed to go and then work for myself and the thought of becoming a rival saddlery didn't like were you set on leather goods or was it saddlery that you wanted to go into it wouldn't have ever been a rival because it's so far away. Yeah. So I was, it's like, oh, I think it's about, it's like two and a half, two and three quarter hours between here and where I used to work. So it's not really, it wasn't ever a direct competition, but moving and being able to, to work for myself gave me the freedom to do more of what I wanted to do. Because mm-hmm. obviously sort of where I was at um, Strauss Saddlery, it was, you know, okay, well, these are the orders that have come in. This is what we make. This is what we repair. This is what you're doing. And so sort of moving up here and being able to do what I wanted to do, I got, you know, to work with newer leather or different leather that I wanted to work with. So more colours that I liked rather than just your traditional black and browns. So that was really nice. Um, sort of just being able to do that. And for me, I prefer dogs to horses. So... It was, it enabled me to sort of build, sort of, it enabled me to build my brand, which when I look at it, it is very much focused on dogs and dog collars and that sort of thing. And then sort of extras, sort of, as I've sort of slotted them in to it. Yeah. So I just made, that's what I wanted to do. So I did. <laughs> I just made luxury dog collars. Yeah. Well, it's worked, so... It's nice. I, I, it's nice doing... I like doing sort of, like, the smaller projects, like the dog collars, because at the end of the week, you'd be like, oh, look, I've made five dog collars this week. Or if you were making, like, a full bridal, at the end of the week, depending on what the bridal was you are making, you might not have finished it. So yeah. it's it's nice to do the smaller projects because I find it more satisfying because you're like, oh, look, I've been really busy this week. Yeah. Um, when you'd be just as busy doing a saddle or a bridle, but you wouldn't have as much to show for it at the end of it. So the bridle's just a head collar. That's what you refer to as a bridle? 
Uh, yeah, so the bridle is what you'd wear when you were riding. So it's a bit, it holds like the, the bit in the horse's mouth. Oh, yeah. And you've got all the nose band and you've got all the reins and that for it as well. The head collar is what you'd like lead it to and from the field in. Okay. And sort of have it on that sort of thing. What do they have in that, in their mouth? Is it like some metal bar or something yeah. like that? Yeah. It's okay. a metal bit. You get sort of all different types. Um, but it, it's basically, it's, it's called a bit as well. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it's just sort of a bit of metal that goes in the horse's mouth and sort of attaches everything to it, and you sort of yeah when... control the horse through that. So sorry, I'm just going back because I think more spring things spring to my mind. So when you're working as a saddler, we doing we doing like one thing, like you make this and you were doing it, or was it sort of <laughs> sectional? Um, it was a few different things. So it, it depended on what was on order. So. Yeah. Um, I worked more closely with Izzy doing sort of the bridal making side of things and sort of repairing the bridal or the, doing some of the repairs that came in that were the non-saddle related repairs Yeah. Um, and sort of making up the new stuff so we, if we did have like collars come in or belts I would do them but we'd split it all between us so everyone got a varied amount of work to do rather than just one thing Yeah. but the majority of my work was Sort of especially towards the end, making up sort of the bridles alongside Izzy. Yeah, and with like saddles, is the leather the exact same? Like on the saddle, like seat, is it the exact same as like the? Is it is so it bridle leather or is it? Sli- sort of a... It's it's slightly different. Um, okay. so for bridles, we'll be using a veg tan bridle butt. Yep. Um, which is the cut of leather that you would use for that. Um, for a saddle. The different parts of it are made of different bits. So the panel and the seat of the saddle is made up usually from a chrome tanned panel hide, um, which is a bit softer and easier to use. You can get like pigskin saddle seats if you wanted to, but they're quite hard to do because pigskin is quite tough. So the majority of saddles will be the panel and the, the seat are panel hide. And then the rest of it will be made up of sort of veg tan leather. So mm-hmm. you'd get, um, it's called flap butt. And it's specifically for like the flaps the saddle. And you can get like plain ones or you can get printed ones and stuff like that. So it's it's sort of similar, but it's slightly different. Yeah. So it's still like a butt, but it's different. And then you'd get, so for the girl straps, that's another hide again that's um you know it's gonna be nice and thick and super strong um and you also get sort of the longer harness backs and stuff so if you're making a set of harness you obviously you need the length for the traces and stuff like that so there'll be like a back which is like a real long piece of leather so they're sort of they're all sort of similar but slightly different and tailored a bit more to what their use is going to be yeah I know there's that, that long, that piece that goes like straight underneath the, it's just the one piece of leather that goes underneath the belly. Is it one? Yeah, so um, it depends. I mean, with a saddle, you, you it's a girth, the, the girth, and that will be a certain length, obviously, depending on your saddle and yeah. the size of the horse you have. Um, depending on what girth you have, that could be made up. So for our uh, training in the saddle, we would, one of the, the level three exam on the day was to make an Atherston girth, 
which is sort of like a shaped girth with a foam filler wrapped in panel hide with a sort of strap bridal butt strap stitched on down the middle of it and then your buckles stitched on shapes at either end mm-hmm. um that was the only girth i've really made and yeah. then sort of but with the harness stuff so you've got the traces which attaches the horse to the carriage they are super long and then with the with the reins as well because you're so far you're set so yeah. far back yeah, how do they do if you're them? doing driving Pardon? How, how do they make the reins so long um so you do get longer highs you'll get like a rain back wow okay so a, a back is the butt and the shoulder sort of it's like pretty much it's like the whole length of the cow pretty much yeah so you use longer leather but you can also splice it so you would have like two straps stitched together with an oh, overlap yeah. yeah okay and so like with the saddle is the saddle tree like the yes what what what's that made out of like traditionally what was that uh i'm pretty sure i think it's laminated birch i know it's a laminated wood okay. and then it's got um sort of spring metal in it so you have like sort of some springs um sort of to keep it yeah where it is it's one of those things it's a whole other area is yeah, just okay. doing the tree making well because i was gonna ask like how do they get the seat like because it starts off as like a you know a tree how does yeah. it become soft and like cushion yeah okay so they place the leather on it and just yeah so you've got well you've got like the wooden tree yeah and then you would web it up so you would use some thick it's like um it's a bit like seat belt webbing and you would put two big webs that attach together from the front to the back and then you would put other straps over the top of it so like and you'd You'd basically you build the seat, okay, um, with webbing, and then you'd put once you've got it set to how you want it, you would then put foam on the top, shape the foam, and then put your leather on top of that. So it's a cross section of leather just stacked up on top of each other. Uh, sort of. There's more webbing base. So to actually build okay, the yeah. seat, you've got. Yeah, you'd have the tree as the oh, base, yeah. and then you okay, web yeah. it on the tree, and then you put the foam on, and then the 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 actual leather just goes on the top. Wow, okay, that's amazing. <laughs> so, okay, so then you started, see, so yeah, then you started JH Leather. Um, so you went straight into dog collars and dog leads straight away. Yeah. So, um. Pretty much. I mean, when I was at Stroud, I did do some bridal fitting, but um, me and myself, I wasn't confident enough to go and do that. And so when I set up, I was like, okay, well, we'll start small. And I did sort of like small component pieces. Um, so like just like sort of the fancy brow bands and that to start with. Um, and then I did the dog collars, leads, belts, did some shooting accessories and other little smaller accessory things. And, and then sort of built on that and sort of being able to, because I am self-employed, I got a bit more freedom to be able to experiment a bit in other projects. And that's when sort of the small leather goods came into it. And 
I just preferred doing the smaller stuff to doing the horse stuff. And so I just sort of pursued, went on down that and sort of that's where I am sort of yeah. now doing more of the small leather goods. Yeah. Then. Do you, so do you say shooting stuff? Yeah. Okay. So cartridge bags and cartridge belts, that's that sort right. of thing. So then, um, what was I going to say? Uh, so what year was that when you started JH? I think it was 2014. Okay. And, okay. So how did you, did you just, did you go to markets to start selling or? Um, I built of... my website um, and sort of did it that way. So, um, and so just built up really. So the location where my workshop is, is an old Victorian workhouse, um, just on the edge of the town. And um, they had a few little, like open days and stuff like that. So I made stuff so I could display for that. And I, in the first year I was up here, I was very enthusiastic about trying to get out and do Christmas markets and stuff. But I very soon realised that that people who go to them were not my target market. And although they liked my stuff, they didn't like what they would have to pay for my stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I mean, most of my stuff is based online. And it always sort of has been from the start. And I've just sort of slowly built up my website. Like I built, I built my original website on, I forget what the program was called. It was like, it was like a 30 pound sort of software that you could get in like a supermarket type thing. It was like, I think it was like Serif websites or something. It was something like that. Yeah. It was pretty basic. So I started with that and I was on that for quite a while. And then I built the website that I've got now on Shopify and yeah. it was a much easier progress process doing it that way. And uh, I've gone to, I've had two different websites on or two different variations of my current website on Shopify and I really like that platform. So but yeah, and I had an Etsy store as well. Yeah, Shopify which is really is, good. It's very easy to use. Yeah, market yeah. market markets are quite daunting. I wanna I wanna get into them more. Yeah. But yeah, I remember that when I first did my one, it's like, oh everyone's judging my my stuff it's yeah yeah it's a bit I, I think I think the biggest thing that I found is you have to educate yeah everyone and they're like they look at it and like so this one person he I don't know, I, I really annoyed myself because I didn't come back with a comeback till later on in the day and I'm like oh is he gonna come back in I gotta come back now <laughs> but like he was looking at my belts and stuff and he was like I can buy like two, three belts at Tesco's for that. And I'm like, well, if you bought that one, you wouldn't have to buy two or three, you know, because the leather's so much better. And I'm like, oh, I wish yeah. he'd come back so I could tell him. Um, so a lot of it is educating, I think, with that sort of thing. Yeah. Sort of, like why it costs that much. And it's like, he was like saying he pays like £10 for one in Tesco's or whatever. And it's like, my leather doesn't cost me £10. <laughs> so... That's I, why you're buying a lot of them. <laughs> I had like the exact same. Cause like, I had like these like bridles out there, and I had like the wax on them still and that sort of stuff. And yeah. he sort of said like, you know, get like one of these for like fifteen bucks at Target, and yeah, it's just like your heart like breaks. It's like yeah. you don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think a lot of it is educating, and it's like. 
I mean, I'm I'm better now. I think because I'm more confident in myself. Obviously, I mean, when I moved up here, I was 24, so I was still quite young, and I didn't have, really have any experience with running my own business at all. And we did a few bits at Stroud with like doing fairs and stuff, but Lawrence was always there to be like, "This is what it is." Yeah. And so yeah, sort of being faced with sort of people who are like questioning you, and you're like. But it's but it took hours making that, and it's just like uh, it, it is it is like heartbreaking, like you said to start with. But I think if you can educate them, yeah, around, then they might actually be like, oh, all right, okay. So yeah, yeah. I remember yeah. The, I remember what I realized was like, where I when I looked at my work, it's like, wow, well, I'm actually I make a lot of things. You make things that you like, and I didn't realize that yeah. until I did a market. And, you know, people would walk past and, you know, you'd get, like, the people that just, like, look at it and, like, walk off and it's like, oh, you know, it's just, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, but no, it is fun, though, you meet other people and, but yeah, it's, um, so, do you, do you miss anything from Saturday? Like, what do you miss from it? Mm. I don't really miss much of it, really. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that's just the end of that sentence, really. <laughs> um, I think because I do quite a variety of stuff now, yeah. I find that that's quite interesting for me because it's all like, it's different. Um, so I prefer that sort of thing. And like I said before, I like the sort of smaller projects because it makes me feel better at the end of the week. Yeah. How did Saturday equip you with the skills to make JH Leather? So, yeah, having the salary background that I have has really helped me sort of get to where I am in that. Because you were, especially at Capel Manor, the uh, teachers were quite um, about, you know, you had to have, like, if your leather work wasn't up to their standard, you're making it again. And especially in the second year, Lena had no trouble telling you if she didn't like what you had made. And... So it's, you know, it was the quality that was sort of pushed into us really from right at the beginning from Capel Manor. Mm-hmm. Then doing my apprenticeship as well. Obviously having to pass the exams there, you had to have, your work had to be, you know, within like a few millimetres. And, you know, if your stitching was really bad, that wasn't passing. If your measurements were out, you weren't passing. It was quite, so it was quite strict. I think having that sort of throughout my training, um really sort of pushed me to sort of where my leather work is now and with the quality hopefully that everyone else can see (laughs) um and so yeah having that sort of that pushing just to get the quality out I think it was really good for for me and I think a lot of people who go through the training sort of that way their quality of the finished work is a lot higher because of that um but also having like the traditional skills i mean swapping that over to the dog collars is really easy and so i got a video of doing like a raised dog collar and sort of doing it like the the traditional salary way is sort of like you shape the filler and you shape the sort of like the top layer of leather and you you would put that into what's called a rounding block to get it sort of 
round and then you put the filler in so that was like the traditional way uh, and when I put that up a, a lot of the comments were why did you do it that way I'll try and find the video um, what's it called something how to raise your leather work or something like that it's quite an old video um I'm pretty sure it's like I'm pretty sure it's or raise your leather work how to make a raised leather dog collar something like that um yeah so we sort of did it that way because that was how I was trained and yeah a, a lot of the comments well the ones that stick out because they I mean you know with sort of doing sort of your own videos and that there's always the negative ones and the ones that criticize you that are like stick in your mind so a, a lot of the comments that I remember from that are like why have you done it that way where you could just you could just split it down and put a square filler in yes but that wasn't sort of like the way sort of I was trained to do it and so I didn't do it that way in the video um so having like the traditional sort of methods of it I think is good and sort of being able to stitch through sort of with the bridles and that you stitch in three like two full thickness layers of um sort of bridal but so you know stitching through that and being able to stitch straight is always is you know a good skill to have and I think if you didn't sort of come from like the bridal side of it starting out doing that is a bit harder because you're not sort of as used to it and you can't just stitch mark all the way through that you can on some leather work you've you have got to use an all yeah, why is that? Because I heard that apparently it's not traditionally correct to punch all the way through leather. Like, why Why is that? I mean, I think on some things, it just depends what it is, really. Yeah, like, but I mean, like, so, back in the day, I guess, or like um, when you were taught. I don't know if it, if it was like a speed thing or if it was like, well, you should be able to do it without doing that, so yeah. we're not going to let you <laughs> type thing. <laughs> um yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm not too sure on on that, but I mean, it depends what you're stitching. Like, I mean, if you're stitching a padded dog collar or a padded noseband or whatever, you can't stitch mark all the way through it because you've got the padding there, and the padding might move and stuff like that. So you have to sort of be able to do it with an awl. And it's the same with sort of some buckle turns and that. It's to get everything aligned up when you stitch mark it if you're going to stitch it all the way through would be quite awkward to do so we just didn't do it okay um i've not tried it now i mean i think if you marked it right you probably could but so sort of if you're doing something like um so i do a lot of my the turns i have like a shaped end on it i don't just have like a flat straight edge on the back of my a lot of my turns i like to have like an egg point so i'll stitch like a like a point and to get that the stitch marked on that marks or lined up with the ones that i've stitched in the front might be quite awkward yeah so is that that triangle think, point isn't it yeah like yeah. it's like a sort of like a round egg point type yeah. egg shape well because you said like that you got those negative comments I, I always thought when I read your comments that you you have a quite a good reputation on I mean, YouTube I just want to say, I think like I said I mean it's always the negative ones that stick out it doesn't matter how many 
good ones you get. You it's always the 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 uh, the negative ones that sort of stick out in your mind. Yeah. And like I'm a lot better now, but a lot of the comments, especially when I started, were about my voice and how people couldn't understand me. I talked too fast. And so I've sort of tried to train myself a bit to talk um, slower and sort of better, I guess. But then I still get comments. People, I have to, like, ask in or say in that they've had to, like, put the... Uh, <laughs> Put on the uh, like the subtitles because they couldn't understand what oh, I was really? saying, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, I'm really trying," but I mean, I think it's more. I think, I mean, I'm. I don't know any other languages, so I think if I probably wouldn't be the best person to train someone whose English isn't their first language because I do talk a bit too fast, and although I do try to slow it down, I think if someone comes to my videos and English isn't their first language I can imagine that I would be hard yeah to listen to <laughs> well because yeah, I've listened back to some of my podcasts when I read like edit them and it's like some of the some of the mumbles you like I say but I guess you can't I guess if you like really took the time to think about it but you can't think of everything. Yeah, yeah I think it's a bit harder with the podcast. I mean, that's the main reason why I do a voiceover on my videos. Because yeah. I can edit out the ums. If I'm really ummy and ari, I can edit that out. Yeah. And, and like I said, I mean, even now, like, I'm better than that than it was. Because on the more the early videos, I did get a lot of people saying, you um and are too much as well. And I say, okay, right, well. <laughs> I'll try and do it without umming and ahhing, or I'll yeah. edit them out. But, um, like, see, I'm just ummed then. <laughs> oh, if I hear myself say like, it's like, oh, no, don't say like. <laughs> like or um or anything like that. It's just... Yeah. Because I remember someone said, I think I was listening to, like, a YouTube video. A guy was talking about how to talk better English, and he was saying you shouldn't say um or like because it makes you sound not convincing yeah what you're saying i can understand that yeah but i think if as long as you know what you're going to say yeah you're not going to um and i say so because you're doing the podcast and stuff you don't know what you know the person who you're talking to is gonna want to think about it and and um is like a okay well, i don't want this to be silent it's gonna be like a yeah it's like you know, in radio, you don't want dead air. So it's just like, oh, let me yeah. just think of an answer. <laughs> I, I remember that you, when you did that podcast with Abby. Yeah. And you mentioned in it that when you first started the videos, like when you look back to your original videos, you sort mm. of like cringe at them. Yeah. And... <laughs> I remember my first, the first episode I ever did on my podcast, it was like just me, myself. Yeah. And I, ne I never uploaded it to Spotify, but I listened to it the other day and it was so cringe. Like, yeah. I just couldn't. Oh. You see, yeah, I mean, that's the thing, though, especially, I think, doing a podcast on your own, it's, it's just you. You haven't got anyone oh, there to, like, so feed back to. Or it's yeah. just like, this is what I'm going to talk about. Hopefully it's okay. But yeah, no, so listening back to 
some of the original videos because I, I have come um I have had a lot of self-confidence issues and I think doing the YouTube and obviously being a bit older now I've got more confidence so I am better talking to the camera and doing my voiceovers now than what I was back when I started but, I mean yeah listening to them and it's just like I was because I was like, let's do the voiceovers at home because my workshop was really it's it's a big room so it's very echoey. Yeah. So I'll try and do them at home, and then I'll be like, right, I have to do it. No one's allowed to be in. The, they have to be out. So like, I don't want anyone near me to hear me talking to myself whilst I'm doing this. Yeah. But, do you, do you like listening back to it, like hearing your own voice? It doesn't bother me that yeah. much. Like, um, I know some people are really funny about it, but if it's just me watching or listening back to it, I'm absolutely fine. It's if I'm with someone else who is watching it and then it's just like, okay, yeah. I don't really want to, to listen to this whilst you're listening to this. You can listen to it on your own. I will listen to it on my <laughs> own. I don't I don't want to be in a situation where we're both listening to this because that, yeah. that I find weird. So, so when did you start your YouTube channel? I think it's coming up five years in April. Yeah. I think I really started sort of going at it. And then it, um, it recently exploded, didn't it? Yeah, I think hitting the 10,000 subscriber mark has been a lot harder than getting to where I am now. Um, so to put that into respect, it took about three years to get to 10,000 subscribers and then a year to go from 10,000 to 35,000. Um, so I think my videos are much better quality than what they were, which I think helps. And I hope so, because I put a lot more effort into them now. Uh, <laughs> you have like all, but, the, all the stuff, the equipment. Yeah, I've sort of built it up as I've gone along. But um, yeah, so very much once you hit a certain level, it then starts to yeah. sort of grow exponentially, I'd say. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so this last year, it has really just taken off um, a lot, It's just, which is really good. Um, yeah. I'm really, because I really enjoyed in the videos. I'm a bit of a tech nerd, and so I just love it. I haven't put any videos out so far this year. I've got one coming out soon. Everything's taking me so much longer now, because I'm like, I need to put it on a slider. And then I got to, like, <laughs> put the camera on it, and that will go past, and sort of working out shots for that. But... Is that like yeah, the I little track? Does that have, it's like a tracking? Yeah, okay. yeah. So, so like, yeah, you basically you just sit your camera on it and it goes like on a little motor, and you can like, <laughs> oh, I've had so much fun with that. And it's just like, what else can I film with it? <laughs> is it on tracks or is it just have wheels? Um, it's it's got like a a little pulley motor on it. Okay. Um, so it just it's like a it's got like a base plate on it that you attach your camera to and then it just sort of I'm, I don't mean I'm not really technically minded I like tech but I don't really know how it works a lot of time it's got like a pulley belt on it so it just like yeah. pulls itself yeah along um yeah because I started the YouTube channel with Leatherwork it is so hard like honestly I, <laughs> like because the algorithms what do I have I've got like uh I've got 21 subscribers. 
That's good though. It's it's one of those things. It's like you've got to be okay with making videos and having no one watch them. That's what you've got to be okay with that to start with. And yeah. then the more you put out and sort of the more things you do, hopefully YouTube will cotton on to it and then start pushing it and more people will see it. But it's one of those things, it's like my brother, he was on about starting a YouTube channel and like the, the only advice I gave to him was that only do it if you're happy with people not watching it. Yeah. yeah because the most... that's the reality <laughs> of a lot of it to start with. Yeah, the most like most comment, the most views I've got is two hundred eighty-seven. It's like yeah. when I when I it was like when I saw one it was like over when it gets like hundred views, it's like wow, like it's amazing. Yeah, like, hundred people have seen it. But, yeah, uh, and funny thing, I mean, how long have you been doing your one now? Um, my first video on it was nine months ago. Yeah, yeah. So it does take an awful long time to sort of build up. Yeah. Especially because I think, I'm not too sure, like, I don't know if it was just because I didn't look, but I think when I started mine, there definitely weren't as many yeah, uh, leathercraft as, as they are now. Um, but, I mean, it still, it took an awful long time to yeah to, to build up. But you, you have, like, a more, like, you have a very unique channel. Like, I like that yours is like more traditional. Like yeah, you bring I mean, that so... saddlery skills into your leather work, which yeah, I like. I think part of what makes mine different. I mean, like I said, I haven't done an extensive search of all the channels that are on YouTube, but a lot of the the videos that I see that are like trying to train you to do something are just a video with no speaking in, and it's just I think it's just the way I like to teach. And it's like if I'm making a video. I want whoever's going to watch it to to actually be able to make it. So that's why sort of my videos can be sort of longer than sort of what some others are. And I do the voiceovers because I want people, if they can understand me, <laughs> my gibbering, to um, to actually be able to make what it is I'm making mm-hmm. um, for themselves. Yeah. And I think sometimes without sort of the speaking and you know, the instructions that go with it, just watching someone do it, you're not, there's like bits in it that you're just not going to catch on to. So I think having someone tell you, now we're going to edge it with a number one edge tool, rather than just edging it, will, you know, it just gives you that, that bit more information. So it's like, okay, that's yeah. the step we're going to do, rather than what was that tool that they use? Like, what's this bit for? Something. Yeah. yeah, it's sort of a different like some of the leather work that I've noticed, which I don't have a problem with, is just different people's styles. Like you have like the photography, videography sort of leather craft where it's like the beautiful yeah. like hear like every like little cut and yeah edge dribbler. And then you have like the more tutorial one which are a lot more longer like yours where it's like a literally like step by step by step yeah. process. So, sort of what people learn from, I guess. Um, yeah. I was actually going to get your opinion on this. So, so, is there, when you're cutting straps, is it really mm. a big thing to go ag- against, um, across the grain or with the grain? doesn't matter. Like, the, it won't stretch. Like, how uh, are you so taught? It depends what sort of cut of hide you're using. So, and what you're making, really. So, 
if you were making, if we go for like a bridal butt, you've got, there are like two best ends of that. So a bridal butt's taken from like down the spine and from the back of the shoulders to the butt of the cow. So within there, the spine is the strongest point and so is the butt end because there's a lot less movement there. So when you're cutting sort of straps and that, especially for a bridle, you want the strongest points to be at your points of wear. So like points, they're always going to be open and closed. So you want the points to be made from the strongest end because that's the end of the bridle, or the end of the strap that's going to get used most. So with bridles, you'd have your, you'd cut your bridle from spine towards the belly of the hide because the spine's obviously where the fiber's nice and tight so it's nice and strong and then you'd also cut your point ends from sort of the butt end of the cow as well because that's also where the strongest bits are so for that you do have a strongest part of the hide so you want to make sure your parts that need that are cut from that bit when it comes to onto like a shoulder the best part of that is right in the middle where the spine would be. So you wouldn't, if you're doing like shorter things, you could cut your points from there. But if you were doing a belt from a piece of shoulder leather, you wouldn't necessarily have a best end unless it was a really tiny belt. Does that make sense? Because I'm, I'm trying to, like, I'm, I have like in my head like the full hide. So when you say spine, is that, like you look on a cow, oh. the top of the yeah. So I would obviously not great for podcasts, but <laughs> let me just draw a rudimental. Because like cow picture. I, I when we were doing the belts, there was like because I remember, so we were taught, well I was sort of taught where one side of the leather was like flexible, and then the other side was stiffer and where you do the loop, like we fold the leather over, you do that, the softer side for that, and then the stiffer end was for, like where the hot where you punch the holes, because that's where the, like the greatest, like where the, the, the tension would be. Is that an accurate? I think we're talking about the same thing. It just might have been explained differently. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so I think we're talking about the same thing there. But, um. so I know this is a podcast but can you is that focusing on my little cow no no oh okay well <laughs> you're saying basically yeah with sort of leather and i might get a diagram this... up just so because you might be able to see it better this is a it's a hide for you yeah okay so so you can see sort of down the middle of that that's where the spine would be yeah so there isn't much movement on a cow at the spine. But if you move out then towards the belly, Which obviously be like... when the cow moves, there is a lot of movement there. Um, and obviously, depending on what sort of the cow was, whether it was a beef cow or what, there's going to be a lot of stretching there. So the fibres that are towards the belly end of the cow or the belly side are looser than the ones that are at the spine. Okay. Because they're not moving as much. And then that's the same within the shoulder. The shoulder moves a lot, sort of when the 
sort of animal moves. Is the shoulder compared to that one? So the, the shoulder, the shoulder is taken from like just behind the shoulders of the cow. Is it, is it that top or the bottom part? The top okay, of yeah. that one. So okay, yeah. yeah. So yeah. So with sort of the leather, the shoulders have a lot more movement in them. Yeah. And so the shoulder cut is taken from just behind where the shoulders would have been, I think, on the cow. I think it's just behind them. So the strongest part of a shoulder is actually the centre where the spine is because okay. there's not really any movement there in terms yeah. of the fibre structure. Okay. So when you buy, like, a butt, because I've yeah. got, got a butt, it's, it's taken either side of the... Like, it's not taken from the middle. It's either taken like one side or the opposite side yeah um so i guess obviously it'd be the one closest to the how like when you get a when you get a piece of bridle but how do you tell which side's closer to the spine um so there are a few different ways um generally you can look at them and you will see um again not ideal for a podcast but on one end will be more square than the other and the other one will have like a sort of like a kink in it um <laughs> you can see my no. awful pictures if, if, if you like press harder on your pencil <laughs> and make it darker because you're a bit blurry at the moment that's all i don't know how close this camera focuses that's no. the problem it's um, pretty pixelated so yeah so yeah so you can generally you will be able to sort of if you look at the hide and you can feel it. So if you feel down both of the long sides at the same time, sort of with your hands, the belly end is going to be a lot more sort of flexible and malleable than yeah. the spine side. Yeah. Okay. So you can feel it. And if you have a look sort of on the flesh side, you generally can see the fiber structure will be tighter at one side than the other. Yeah. And the tighter fiber structure is what you're looking for. That's going to be the best bit of it. Uh, and then you can do the same with the butt and the shoulder. Yeah. So generally, when you get like a fresh hide, you will have like a one end will be like a bit rounded and then sort of kinking towards the spine, and that that's like the butt, and it's sort of like the butt cheek, I guess. <laughs> uh, and the shoulder end where it's been cut off from the shoulder cut will have a more sort of square end to it. And then again, you can then test, sort of have a look at the fiber structure and feel the shoulder end is going to be more malleable than yeah. the butt end. Okay. So if you did make like a belt with yeah. a piece towards the belly end, is that like even worth it or would you not even bother? Yeah. For a belt and dog collars, it would be fine. It's sort of when it comes down to sort of like reins on a horse. Okay. Because obviously a horse is a huge animal. And it puts a lot of power for it. You don't want to really cut your reins from a bit that's real close to the the belly end. You'd get like a new hide in for that. Yeah. But for belts and stuff, there's not you don't put a lot of strain on a belt. Yeah. So I mean, you can make belts from shoulder leather if you if you if you want to. Um, that's not a problem to do it with shoulder leather. Yeah. Um, just for me, I make mine with a butt because it's longer. Yeah generally and you can get longer belts out of it so that means like if you were making a briefcase or something like that you would have to like really choose where you place like cut from or would 
would not really it wouldn't really matter as much in small goods compared to no not with small goods okay. it wouldn't matter as much i mean i'm not i've not made a briefcase myself so okay. um i wouldn't be sort of the best person to ask regarding that but yep. generally if you've got an area that's taking strain or is going to be under a lot of pressure that's when you'd want like a thicker leather or a stronger leather yeah um okay. for those sort of components so it doesn't matter like if you're cutting with the grain or across the grain it doesn't as long as it's okay that's fair enough i mean as far as i know and as i've been taught it doesn't matter but it might just be that i don't know (laughs) but i've not come across it being an issue so when you when you were doing saddlery did you just learn about bridal leather or did you learn about all different types of leather um just sort of more what we were using so okay. a lot of pretty much everything was made from bridal butt so that's why i'm very comfortable using that in a lot of my products because i've been using that for my whole sort of standard retraining and career um but we do use sort of other bits um like you'd use sort of like a bridal shoulder for sort of smaller bits and pieces and if you were doing sort of what did we use it for? So this is uh, because we use bridal butts so often. We didn't really use the shoulder that much unless we were doing something that would take a lot of leather. So if you were doing like a U-shaped brow band, um, because you got to like you would cut like a real wide like five inch bit, depending on how big the brow band was and how big the drop was going to be. You would usually do that on a bit of shoulder, like a thick shoulder, because there's no real um sort of stress going through a brow band on a horse so you would use like a shoulder for that mm-hmm. does that make sense what's a brow band a brow that's the bit on the bridle that oh, goes yeah, that thing. A, like cl- that across the horse's brow oh yeah <laughs> did, did you make stirrups uh we did some stirrup leathers as okay. sort of part of the course yeah. um but the majority of people who would come to the shop bought stirrup leathers just off the shelf. Okay. Um, I want to get your advice on this because I, I really like using bridal leather and I was using it for making wallets with it. Um, I got some from Cedric. I made this like woman's wallet. Yeah. And I just want to get your opinion on... So, I'm not sure if this was just too thick, but when you when I bend... I found that when I bend... When I bend it to close it, it like starts cracking. Is that yeah? A... So, what color is it? Is it Body. a lighter color? Yeah. So it depends how it was colored, really. So a lot of hides now, um, they have like a very small layer of actual colored finish to it. Yeah. Especially with the lighter colors. So, um, on the blacks and the like the dark browns, you, you generally you can see how far like the stain yeah, has penetrated into the hide. It's quite with thin. the light coloured leathers. Yeah, with the lighter coloured leathers, I don't know. I don't think they it's the, the same. So it might it's there's more likely to be have sprayed on rather than to have been like worked into the hide. Yeah. And so because that dye hasn't like penetrated into the skin when you fold it, it does lighten a bit. And it will be, I think, down to the way that it's been coloured. 
Okay. I'd say. Because I was told I got some advice to, like, wetten it a bit. And I, yeah. like, I put some water on it. But as I put water on it, it, like, oh, I probably can't see, like, all the... Yeah, like, it gl- sort of delaminates a bit, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, all the... So I was... Yeah, I mean, I think I'm... I'm not too sure. I mean, for my sort of smaller leather wet project like that, I prefer to use a thinner shoulder than some, um, like, rather than a bridal shoulder, because I think there is a difference between them, and I think it's more to, like, to do with the finishes. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not an expert in sort of how they colour it or anything like that, or how they actually finish it, or how, like, a bridal butt is or finished differently to a different sort of butt. But I think a lot of it comes down to the colouring of it. Okay. And if it's sort of just sprayed on on top rather than actually dyed into the hide, that's where you get the lightening of the colour. So I think if you've got a shoulder or I think they've just come out with the, these oiled hides actually from Sedwick's because I've got, I think I've got a little bit of it in the workshop. And that that's sort of the dye in that is sort of more sort of through the hide yeah than it is on like the bridal shoulder that you've got yeah i think this was a bridal i think this was a bridal butt and this was from rocky okay. mountain this was from rocky mountain and yeah um yeah because i because i'm i made my mum one of these and yeah it started cracking on it so what i did i that's why i made i made it like a, a three centimeters in the middle yeah and yeah it's still it's not as bad as this, but I think when I when I wet it, it just like yeah, all that. But yeah, I just I just love bridal leather. Like, so you wouldn't recommend using it for wallets, like for a minimalist wallet. It's, it's I mean, if it depends if you can get it to the right thickness. So there are services. I mean, over here in the UK, you can get them split down. Yeah, Rocky Mountain does it for free. Um, so I mean I haven't used because I I've not I've not used one of those splitting services and the the splitter that I've got is like the manual one that you see in my videos. It's not really well I haven't found that ideal for splitting leather down for wallets. So yeah. I use a thinner leather to start with. Yeah. And then sort of I can work with it that way. Um, but I think I think having the thinner leather to start with is probably to experiment a bit with thicknesses i guess the thing that i would suggest would be if you've got like a little bit of it to test with it first like um and split it down to that thickness and just sort of play with it i wouldn't have thought so because when i do like the square raising and that i do split it really thin and when i put it then back over it 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 doesn't seem to cause any problems in like coloring wise so i think having it thinner to start with yeah. Even if it was a thick hide, would would be a better starting place at least. Yeah. Right. But like on these like sort of like these little goods, they're just like yeah. it, it works fine. It's just bending yeah. is the Yeah, I just, I just I think it's such a gorgeous and I I got some Italian leather, but it's it's just it's just not the same. Like it's Yeah. I um Yeah, it's um yeah, so I was actually going to ask you about like the edge dyes. Like we spoke about this before, and because yeah. I struggled with edge dyes, and then I saw that video where you talked about the Abbey powders, yeah. and I've used them and they've worked 
the the brown's a bit light. It's a, like you put the brown on, but then it goes light. Yeah. Um. Is the is it is staining different in Saturday compared to? Because I, I remember I was watching like a traditional Saturday or traditional. He must have been a Saddler or someone, but he used like he was using pearl glue. Like you'd make like okay. the, and then you put it on top, and it like gives the glaze. I was going to ask you about yeah. the dye you use. Yeah, so I think um, Saturday. I mean, especially the way that I've gone through it is quite traditional, and so you can use different glues with your dye if you're going to go down the powder dye route, and that is the route that I did at Capel Manor College and throughout my apprenticeship. We it was all powder dye, and when I was at Stroud, we used a different glue. I don't remember what it was other than Lawrence had, honestly, a massive vat of it. That's the only way I can explain it. It was a huge barrel. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure what it was other than in it was like a liquid glue rather than a powder glue, which is what I use for mine. Um, so, I mean, I prefer the powdered. I use it's like wallpaper flakes. Yeah, what so is that's that what stuff? I use for mine. It's 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 just it's like a it's like just add water glue type thing, I guess. Okay. Um, so I mean, I and I prefer that to the glue that Lawrence had. Um, one because it's easy to store because it's just powdered, um, but also I find that I I just preferred the finish of it with like the wallpaper flakes because we had Stroud sort of stain that we would have at Stroud, and then I'd make my own stain when I was at home and I didn't take the glue home I had my own sort of wallpaper flakes at home and I just I prefer it that way so I mean I think it's one of those it's each to their own and you'll find something that you like and it works well for you yeah so the stuff that I teach on my channel is well this works for me this is how I do things if you want to do it my way this is how I'm going to show you to do it in this video um, so it is a lot of each to their own, but I think I prefer my powder stains. I love them. Yeah, I like them. As and well. with your with your brown, you can add if you've got any black powder stains, just add a little bit of the black into it. And just do it slowly, and that will darken the brown down. Yeah. Okay. Is is the golden brown? Is that worth getting or not? Really? It depends. So I have the golden brown for my Australian nut and conker hides. Um, which is a bit lighter than a dark Havana. So like a lighter sort of ready, sort of yeah. Australian nut is a ready brown and the Conker is sort of a um, more orangey brown. Yeah. And so, but even with that, I will mix that with some of the brown, like the, the dark Havana brown stain, just yeah. to darken it a bit because it's a bit too light as it comes out. But that's my personal taste. Yeah. And you can sort of tailor it as to whatever how you're using and yeah what you like it to look like really yeah how, how do you so actually what's made what's in those powders what do they put in those do you know what they I'm have? not sure to okay. be honest yeah um I can try and find out um but I honestly I'm not too sure yeah. um what it is and all I know is that the black has glue in it because you can see it it's got white flecks in it. And the oh, okay, the yeah. um, black and the golden brown that powders that they do don't have it in. Yeah. And I don't know why that is. Um, but I mean, I could probably find out if 
Yeah. If you'd like. <laughs> yeah, because I, I used to add pearl glue, like the pearls to it. Yeah. And oh, like when, when that goes off, it literally stinks. And I just, I just, have, <laughs> I just make water and put the, the powder in and, you know. Yeah. So the I've not had that problem with any of the stains that I've got. Yeah. With the adhesive, the uh, wallpaper flakes that I use. Yeah. And like the stains that I have. So that black stain that I made in that video, I still have. And I'm still using and I haven't done anything to it. And it's absolutely fine. Yeah. And it's the same with sort of the golden brown stain. I don't know when I made that up. I had to put it in a new pot the other day because the, uh, the lid broke and then I, I couldn't, it wouldn't like stay on. Yeah. Um, but I originally, I made that original stain when I was living in Stroud. Um, so that was like, it would have been 2013, 2014, depending on what year I made it there. It was towards the end yeah. before I moved up here. So I've had that golden brown stain since like 2013, 2014. And I just add to it yeah. if I need to. Like if it runs low, I'm like, okay, well, I'll put a bit more powder in, a bit more glue, water, top it up. So it's never actually run out. I just keep adding to it. Yeah. <laughs> so when you when you do like your blue collars and your bright color collars, yeah. You use like you actually use like the 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 stain from Metropolitan. Yeah. So House. Metropolitan Leather actually have a coloring service that they do. So if you went onto their website, you wouldn't be able to buy like a blue bridal book, um, but you can request custom colors so my the red the green the navy the purple and the pink that i have had have all been from them and have all been custom requests so i think they're about 30 pound extra and they have so if you've been onto the metropolitan site some of the letters that they have they do a lot of colors in anyway so you can request one of those colors if you wanted or so for the purple that i did for mine i actually sent them a, a paper um yeah, you get um, paint charts. I went through and I actually got the paint chart colour that I liked the most and I sent them that and then they colour match it. And so with that, because they're making up the stain for or the for that hide, uh, you can request a, a, the stain to go with it to match. So when I ordered the pink, for example... Once we got the colour confirmed, I you know put the order in and I requested a bottle of stain to go with it. And it's it's exactly what they use to colour it. So my edge stain matches the rest of the collar or the leather exactly because it's exactly the same stain. Wow. So, so they actually have like a service that you can actually buy coloured leather from. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so they do, I, and a lot of their other hides, they do do sort of options like the Lamport colours. They've got like 20-odd different colours that you can choose from. Um, so they do do their own colouring. So with the Bridal Burts, because that's the hide that I like and I prefer to make my leather work with them, I you just ring them up or send them an email. Yeah. And uh, it's not, I, I don't think it's a well-known service. I know they don't really promote it on their website a lot. Is it Lamport is... coloured shoulder? Yeah. So you see okay. they've got loads of different coloureds there. And so when I come to 
requesting a custom hide i'll either pick one of the lamport colors or send in a swatch of something i like baby pink <laughs> well okay what where do they get their leather from what um um i'm not too sure i know a lot of it is from europe yeah a lot of their shoulders um, i'm not too sure what where is um a, is that a double shoulder or just a single um i'm not too sure where you are on the website i think the most of it's just a single shoulder okay i think i think they might do a double butt in one thing but i'm not too sure to do like an old English bridle. Yeah, so that one is English because they wouldn't be able to um, <laughs> say it's an English bridle, but if it's not, Darkavine. Okay. So, what is the um? Is the does the is it smelly? This the edge dye that you get with it? No, no, no. It doesn't. It, if it, I don't know if you have it over there. So over here in schools, you'd have like acrylic paint. Oh yeah. It smells it smells a little bit like that. That's the closest thing I can put a smell to it yeah. as. It smells a little bit like that. Yeah. But that's really good. Um I really sort of enjoy using those stains actually. So it's not a paint, it's just a it's a stain. No, it's like an in between. Okay. I can't work it out. Like it's not like an edge paint because it's still quite runny. Yeah. Um so like the way that I was sort of trained, you sort of, you know, it was always a stain that we would use. So you'd put the stain on and then you'd burnish it and go on and do the rest of it. So you can do that with this, but you can also sort of build it up as well. So what I generally do when it's those sort of stains that I've got from like, which are the runnier ones, I will put it on like a stain, burnish it like I would normally. Then I'd put like another layer on it and yeah. then just leave it. And, and then on top of that i'll either put some tolkadol and then usually some acrylic resiline as well just yeah. to make sure that it's got a little bit of waterproof protectiveness on top of it yeah is is tokenol is that is that a do you, do you have to put beeswax on top of that because i usually put beeswax on top of it do you really need um, to or not really i think it depends what it is so like a i do use tokenol it's like a it's more like a leather it's sort of like a finish, but it doesn't give like a waterproof protectness as far as I know. Yeah. So what I my general process, say if I was making a belt, it'll be stain it, then put the tolkanol on, do whatever else I need to do to it, and then at the end I'd restain the turn, put a bit more tolkanol on that, and then I would put acrylic resiline over the whole thing. Like over all the edges. Um and I think I think it would be fine without it, but in the back of my mind, I've always got a little nagging feeling that, okay, this is a blue belt. If someone wears this with white trousers, say, or like a light colored trouser, I really don't want the stains to come out. And I'm quite paranoid about that. Yeah. Um, I don't think it would happen, but I like to put the acrylic resiline on as a sort of, sort of, just to help my mind, I guess, be at ease. It's like, okay, it's got that on. You know, it's going to be fine. Yeah. Is um, is beeswax just as good or not? I've I've not used beeswax, okay. so I can't really give you a an affirmative on yeah. that. But I would say it's one. Of, it's just one of like 
I mean, you could do your own tests with it. I would say yeah. that it's fine, but without having done it myself, I, I can't really yeah. compare them. Is that just fibings, the acrylic resin? Yeah, the acrylic yeah. resin. I don't know if I'm saying that right. <laughs> so I've always said it. I say things how they look. <laughs> so I'm, I'm looking at their like their edge paint, like the like on their website. The, the edge coat that they the do. Yeah. Um. So it's weird. So is it edge color? Is it the oil based dye water or oil? Um, I think they do lots of different stuff. I mean, my I haven't really used them the feeding stuff. Other oh, no, than oh, no, the acrylic resin. Oh no, the same. Um, oh, Metropolitans. All right, yeah. So you got your edge, and then you got your oil base. Yeah. Your... So I do know a little bit about them. So I know. I mean, so the like the stains, as it were, are sort of more geared towards if you're using a natural leather that you wanted to color yourself. Um. So if you got like just a, a russet or like a, a natural hide that you were going to colour yourself, that these two products are geared more towards that. Oh, the oil-based um, and the water-based. Yeah, so okay. the, the water ones, I think you can mix the colours with and sort of create your own colours. You can't really do that so much with the oil ones. Yeah. Um, But they're mostly used for that. I think you can use them on the edges, but I haven't really used them. I've got a few in the workshop, but I haven't really used them that much just yet to sort of just test how they compare with the stains that I use and how I like to use them the way I do. Mm-hmm. And then their edge colour is the thicker sort of like edge paint that sort of people will be more sort of commonly used to seeing. It's a yeah. bit more that sort of style. Yeah. And that's the one you use, the edge colour? Yeah, I've used it a few times. Okay. Um, But I haven't used it that often because... I think I was saying before we got into our chat, um, I just like the stains so much. Yeah, same. I, I, like... <laughs> I, just, like, I just like using them. I like Because I haven't had much experience with them because sort of the saddlery side, at least the side that I'm from, we didn't use edge paint. It's all stains. Yeah. So it, yeah. Um, because it's just a different sort of process that like you don't burnish it. You don't like rub it in or anything like that. I, oh, really? You just sort of leave it. And it's just like, and I think I'm kind of impatient for it as well. I'm like, why oh, did it dried yet? I need to get on to the next bit. Whereas with my stain that I've made, I'm just like, boop, 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 done. And now I can move on to the next bit. Yeah. And that's what I like about stains as well, because I actually get straight into the leather. It's not like sitting yeah. on top. It gets yeah. straight through. It's, uh, yeah. And then you put like tokenol on it and it just. Yeah, I love tokenol. Like, I've not had it for that long, but just like, I'm, I like what I like because I'm really sad. And I'm like, I'll do one side and then I'll like not do the other one. And then I say, oh, look, you can feel the difference. Look how smooth yeah. this one is with Tokenol. And then this one's just not done. <laughs> I remember before Tokenol, like you'd get the, you'd get a piece of leather and it would burnish like so easily. And then you get like another piece of leather and it sort of wouldn't burnish as good. And it's, yeah. and then with Tokenol, it sort of just makes them. Like even even yeah. both out. Yeah, well. it is what they put in it. But it's it's very good. I do like using it. Is there a reason why you get like a nice piece and a bad piece of leather? That's just the where you cut it from, I guess. I think so. I think yeah. I think it depends where it's been cut from. Yeah. Um, and the fiber structure. If yeah. it's a real loose 
fiber structure it's going to absorb yeah a lot of that stain yeah um so you might just be you might be able to get the same level of sort of polish eventually but it might just be like sucking a lot more of the stain in than a bit on like the other end of the hide which might be a bit tighter yeah how did you get into training courses because you do a teaching yeah so they sort of started on the back of the youtube channel so i started the youtube channel first and then sort of people were starting to like inquire as to if they could come to the workshop and learn as well so it sort of started on the back of that and i'm fortunate enough that the workshop that i have is big enough to have sort of multiple workbenches in so i did start and try and do it as a this is the course that we're running these are the date type things but i found it quite hard to get people all wanting to do the course at the same time so i sort of tried that out a bit but then moved on to a a more one-to-one basis because it was easier for people to get that scheduled in than me setting random dates that i've sort yeah. of pulled out of the air to do it and yeah so it's just a sort of continuation on from the leather uh channel really um i like i think it's because I, lo- I love the craft so much i want to get as many people into it as possible yeah. and i'm like how how many ways can i get people into this i'll run courses so yeah and i like i love i mean like i said i love teaching it and like especially when you get someone sort of come in and like they've never done any leather work before and like they've they've got the day with me and it's like it's just like the look on their face that they've like they've learned if so I split the day up in like two halves so in the morning we'll learn sort of about the tools and we'll do some hand stitching and then after lunch we'll make a project and even like when they get to lunchtime and it's basically it's just like it's just stitching around a bit of leather like that's like that's all it is it's just stitching around all the bits of leather and that's the first sort of like morning i like they're so pleased at the end of it and it's a really good like especially sort of if you're like new to it or you're still just getting into it it's a really good little exercise to do actually because you can see where you started and where you finished the difference in your stitching yeah. as you've gotten into it and you've gotten better as you've gone around the whole sort of little piece that you stitched and then yeah then so we do that in the morning and in the afternoon it'll be like a project like a notebook cover or you know something like something quite small but something that they can complete in the afternoon and then like they like they finish it and it's just like the little wonder on their face and they're like I've made this and it looks good and so yeah like go yeah. on be a leather crafter and uh, sort of thing so I just yeah I, I'd like it and sort of yeah, the joy it brings for the people like when they've made something so yeah how's um how long did it take you to do like a how long did it take you to learn saddle stitching when when we started so and like i said i mean i started at capel manor college that was a full-time college course so yeah. we were I'm trying to think obviously it's quite a while ago um I think our first week was just getting into like the area because it was in Enfield and we were all like little like teenagers like oh we've moved to London um and uh yeah so it was like sort of like getting into it and sort of that was the first week but then like it takes a long time to like really work your way through it so like we would do like uh you'd start like with your stitching 
just to start with. I think we only maybe spent like a few days on it, and then it was like boom into the first project. Yeah. Um, which I think was like a um, it was like a foal head slip or something. It was quite small, and then like, I've still got a lot. I've still got all the work that I did when I started. Like, you know, just to see how far you've come. Yeah. Um, from where you started. Yeah. So a lot of those people would have seen your YouTube channel and and apply to do your courses. Yeah. Yeah, oh, a lot okay. of them sort of have seen sort of that and then have asked. They obviously I'm sort of based in the UK so it's it's restricted a bit as to who can yeah. come on the courses. But I've been asked more and more, especially sort of you know, during this the last couple of years where people are at home a lot more um, yeah. and looking to get into stuff. I've had an awful lot of inquiries this last year. So hopefully I can start them again and that'll be good. I'll be nice and busy doing that. So, yeah, yeah I think, awesome. yeah, it's like, you know, obviously it's an awful thing that's happened, but I think more people are valuing their time and what they want to do with it and are looking to get more yeah. into crafts and stuff so it has I think you know had a positive impact on sort of not just leather work and people wanting to get into that but sort of all hobbies and crafts in yeah. general as people are yeah. looking for other stuff to do yeah that's awesome so anyone could um because I was looking at your courses and you do like head collar courses and yeah like bridles and everything yeah 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 if like um so i do um could you like, teach me how to do like, like the stack <laughs> the stack the stack nose whatever it is yeah like, yeah i mean it's one of those things it's sort of i have a few different options on there because obviously if you're making a bridle that's you know that's quite intensive and you that takes a while rather yeah. than if you were just looking like oh i just want to spend the day doing it and just see if i like it or you've yeah. got a sort of smaller project that you sort of want a bit of help with or you know that sort of stuff so it can all be tailored to sort of what you're looking to get out of it really yeah that's i'm glad you enjoy it are you literally going through like you start yeah. off as the apprentice and now you're like a teacher it's yeah it's uh did, did you ever think it was going to get this popular leather craft no 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 i mean like I think... That was a it's bit just, of a yeah, gamble, I, like such a gamble as well. Like 2014, online shopping is quite young. Like it hasn't been yeah. around for very long. And yeah, no, I think I think just I just enjoyed doing it so much. I was just determined to make it work for myself. Yeah, and I say, you know, that's what I want to do. And then I did get a part time job when I first started up here, just to try to keep things stable, and then. As it's gone on, obviously, I've managed to, you know, grow the business and sort of with the YouTube and that, that's now another sort of source of income. Yeah. So it's all sort of just grown. Yeah. Um, to a point where it's, yeah, to the point where it's at now. So, so your most successful products would mainly be your dog leads and your dog collars? Yeah, they are what gets ordered the most would be the, the okay. doggy items. I was watching your video on how to make a dog collar because I'm going to make one for my sister. Yeah. Um, Jean, and because I, I love how you do like the wedges. Yeah. 
do you need to do them? Because <laughs> they look no. like extra work. <laughs> no, you don't need to do them. But they look so nice, the though. reason that I put them in, and they only go in around the D ring. So if you imagine yeah. if they're not there, the leather either side of that D ring sort of get pinched in. Yeah. So by putting the two wedges in, it doesn't pinch it either side. So because that's going to be a weak point anyway or that's going to be under most strain especially if you walk your dog on a lead it's the d-ring that's getting all of the sort of tension on it mm-hmm. so i just like putting those two wedges either side of it because it sort of alleviates the stress of the leather on the back of the turn yeah rather than having it sort of pinch around it yeah. it's going to go through the wedges instead yeah what gave you the idea to do that I don't know, to be honest. I think I just did yeah. it one day, and I'm like, oh. It's really nice. Like that from now on. <laughs> I was actually quite surprised that you stitched, like, over the D-ring as well. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to. You can stitch up to it. Um, and but you backstitch. If you marked it out. Um, yeah. So I think it's just because of the way I mark it out. For for, feet, for speed for, on my side of it, I can stitch them out the whole of the collar in one go. Yeah. Rather than working out, okay, well, this is where the D-ring's going to go. So I'm going to stitch mark up to that. Then I'm going to get a new thread and then stitch the rest of it. And so rather than do that, I just stitch over. Is, um, I've always wondered this. So when you, with the belt loop thing, how far should that be from the belt buckle? Because I always get, like, whenever I do belt belts and all that, should it be like... um? I think, so a lot of that is down, I think, again, to personal preference. Okay and how um, the item is being made. So, again, from my salary background, the loops on all bridal work was would be caught in the first stitch. So you would have, like, the, the edge of your loop the, that's closest to the buckle would be sat in between the first and second stitch mark, so it gets caught in that first stitch. But with a lot of more sort of leather crafty side of it, I noticed that the the loop is further down. Yeah. And I it doesn't really make that much difference, I don't think. It's just a personal thing, like I said. So I've always done mine how I've learned, which is in like the first stitch. But if you want to put it further back, you can do. There's no... Yeah real reason for it to need to be close or far it doesn't really matter it's a okay aesthetics thing i think yeah so like you have the like one hole two hole so it's on the second hole yeah okay yeah yeah and i think it depends how it's being attached so again from my salary background you we would stitch all our loops in yeah um on some of the sort of belts that you see online you, you can see that they sort of stitch up to it and then there's like a gap where they fit a loop in and then they stitch the other side of it. So I think that comes depending on how it's being manufactured. Rather than stitching on a machine the loop in, they'll stitch like part of it, put a pre-fixed sort of loop in which usually has a staple in and then stitch the other side of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think that's sort of a more machine side of it yeah uh, it's one it's each to their own really yeah. it i don't think there's any there's no real 
benefit or negative from it being closer or further away. It's just what you like, really. Yeah. If you put it closer, you could fit two loops on. If you wanted to put two in. Yeah. Uh, Does the loops have to be, like, thinner? Like, how much... Yeah, so like you don't those... want them to be too thick because else they're not really going to bend around. Yeah. So generally I'll have mine about 1.5 millimetres thickish. That's pretty thin. Around that. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the loop's not taking any strain. It's just yeah. holding a strap in place. So it doesn't need to be super thick. Yeah. But I also like to have my loops square. Again, yeah, well... I think that's coming from the... Yeah, the saddlery like... side of it. So I've got like a set of loop sticks which are square and they are solely for blocking like a loop to make it look square. Yeah, I need to get some of those from Abby because I, yeah. uh, I do like, I have to put like a piece of leather in and that's sort of my yeah. stick. <laughs> so, but it's not the same because you can like force it through and get yeah. that real like yeah. square. Yeah, so you can make it. it like a little bit smaller and then if you put your loop stick in it will stretch it. So it'll really? stretch it okay. so the strap can fit through a bit, but it'll make it so it stays nice and square. Yeah. Yeah, I did one of my belts up there. It's like as square as I can. Because I think I just like stacked like leather like in it. Yeah. Um, so how's your joints from years of hand stitching? Because my forearms, like, I'm going to the physio next week because my forearms like quite tight. Yeah. So it is actually something that I've struggled with quite a lot. And I, too, am going to the physio next week. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think I, it, I've had to change the way I work a few times to try and manage it. And so it's just now it's getting to a point where I'm really going to have to change how I work because it hurts an awful lot. So I get I've got at the moment, I think it's tennis elbow. Um and it just hurts to do anything. Even just like being at home, like I can't get comfortable. I was like, my arm's straight and it aches. I'm, it's bent and it aches. It just really? so yeah, okay. yeah no, I've got it quite bad at the minute. So um, yeah, so it is something that I am struggling with a lot now. So it is something, I think being aware of it is the biggest thing and you don't push yourself through it too much. You've got to, you've got to take care of your body. So I've gone through a few different ways to try and alleviate it. So we used to, or when I first moved up here, I used to prep everything up at the beginning of the week and then just hand stitch everything at the end of the week. And I found that would aggravate it a lot. So I've changed now to doing it one order at a time to try and keep doing or keep my arms and my hands doing different things rather than doing the one repetitive thing. But so since sort of November, I've been really busy and I'm finding it harder and harder to manage what I'm doing. So over sort of the Christmas break, I made a decision to like reduce the amount of work that I was doing in terms of the orders that I was getting. Because at the moment I have like loads of products listed on my website, which you can go on and purchase and order. And then they'd get made up and they'd go through the order system that way. But because of the way my YouTube channel has grown and how much I love doing that and the teaching side of it, I really enjoy. It's got to a point now where it's like, okay, well, I can 
slowly start to make the switch over from doing a loads of orders and doing a bit of teaching and YouTube as I can to doing less orders and doing more YouTube and teaching. And sort of by doing that, it's going to help my joints a lot more because I'm not going to be making as much stuff. So I'm hoping that we're doing it that way. It's going to mean that I can sort of stay doing the leather craft for longer really because I'm worried that if I don't make any changes now then it's just going to impact me in the future and I, yeah. I, I'd rather it didn't yeah is there, is there exercises you can do to um... um I'm I'm not too sure yet I'll be able to let you know next week when I've been to yeah. the video <laughs> yeah because my forearm hurts like right like just below the elbow and yeah. like I noticed that my forearm was like tensing, like, like spasming. Yeah, and it was doing it for ages. Yeah. It's not my all hand; it's my like oh, pressing really? against the. Yeah, it started. Oh. It flared up a bit again. So, um, I, plus this 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 wallet I did, oh, it took like ages to stitch like all that. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that was like over two hours of stitching. Yeah. In that, so. Um, yeah, so, and, plus, and we were using the pricking iron as well because when I was using like the stitching chisel where it goes all the way through, it's yeah. easy to s- put the needle through, like, duh, duh, yeah, duh, 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 and then whereas with the all, it's like, <clears throat> yeah, <clears throat> like all the way yeah. through, yeah. So, so, I mean, I'm not too sure, I don't know if I'm just susceptible to it because a lot of the people who I've worked with don't have this issue and they do like more than I do. So yeah. I don't know if it's just I'm just susceptible to it or I've done something in the past that has yeah. made me susceptible to it. But yeah. yeah, it's one of those things, I think. I've been doing it for quite a long time, though, as well. So yeah, it's, I think it's, maybe it's coming amazing. at it from a young era, younger age, maybe, when my joints were all nice and young. <laughs> it's like people have like 10 different, like five different careers before they and yeah for people yeah i think to usually have, like, people come little... to leather craft a bit later on in life but i started when i was 18 so yeah it's just mainly sharpening your tools and your all yeah stuff. how important are because when i got in yeah because i never really cared about sharpening <laughs> when i <laughs> you just assume that blades will not get blunt so yeah um until they do how do you like? Could you use like the like a full blade, like that, not the half moon one, like the little, you yeah, that other one. It's like the goes like that. So yeah, yeah. I, I think you know. Um, so I use um, like a single head knife. Um, so it's not like the whole like half moon. It's like a half a half quarter yeah. moon. Um, just because like, I've got a quite small hands, so I prefer using the smaller knives. And also, sort of with my training, from right from the start, we always had the single head knives. Yeah. So I've always used one of them. Um, so I have tried with other ones, but I just prefer the smaller single head knife. And when you buy them, they are blunt. Uh, I think just because it would add on a lot of uh, money to each knife if they then had to sharpen them all. So, yeah, so when you when we 
when we got our so when we did our first year at college we had like a loaner set of tools which we were then expected to replace for our second year and we'd have our own tools so we did have sharp knives and that to start with and we learned how to sharpen them and then you'd get your own one and you'd have to like start again so I mean obviously fortunately for me coming up through the way that I sort of trained I always had you know there was always someone there to help me if I needed but yeah having sharp tools is very important it just makes your life so much easier and so sort of over the years I've sort of gotten obviously I've gotten a lot more experience so I'm a bit a lot faster at it now um sort of got a few different ways I do it I like using wet and dry paper just to get the shape of stuff because it makes it a lot easier to start with also if you've got a real real rough knife coming and you've got a lot of nicks in it then using an oil stone is like a, a like a fine one oil stone just to get it to the point where you can then move on to the sort of wet and dry and then work your way down through the grit so you get to like like a, a 1000 grit and then go on to like a strop board just for a final polishing yeah okay wow because like I have, I have a scribing knife and it's just like absolutely trash <laughs> it's like I, I, I don't know I don't I've never I don't even know how to like I know how to yeah, strop so... but I don't know how to yeah, so they're a bit harder, I think, to sharpen to start with. But what I like to do, if you get like a, a marker pen and just mark right on the very edge on your cutting side of it, because you've got like the flat side and then you've got the shape side. On that shape side, the cutting side, mark with your marker pen like across the bottom of it. Mm-hmm. And then you can see when you're sharpening it, if like what bit you're sharpening. So basically what you want to do is make sure you get that sort of marker pen line off evenly yeah. so you if you're working one bit you'll be able to see okay well actually i need to hold it a bit differently because you want to keep the shape of the blade the same yeah and just sort of take off the burrs and stuff mm-hmm. so i do that and sort of put your marker pen on it and sort of slowly do it whilst you're sort of building up your technique and then you got to make sure you also then do on the flat side like one or two strokes just to make sure you get the burrs off and you want to keep that nice and flat so you don't change the shape of the flat yeah. side of yeah. the blade. But a lot of it is, it's one of those things, it's until you do it you and then do it often, Yeah. you're not going to know how to do it. And doing it yourself is the best way to do it. Like, mm-hmm. I know when we were at college, other people would be like, can you sharpen this for me? Like, to other sort of students on the course and stuff like that. And that was like, sort of, you know, and it was like, well, if you don't learn to do it, you're not gonna learn yeah. to do it. So, yeah, with blades like a beveler and like a French edger, yeah, you're just more so stropping that because you, you can't. Yeah, so there are, there are a few techniques that you can use to sharpen like your edge tools and stuff like that, and your French shave. So, what you want to do is obviously to sharpen the back side of it. You want to keep that the same sort of you don't want to like kink it up you want to keep that nice and flat and just drag it back towards yourself um to sort of get any birds off the back side but in between the sort of prongs on the the top of your blade you need to also sort of sharpen that and get rid of any sort of burrs on that so there are a few different techniques if you're using like a really like a number one or a really small um 
sort of edge beveler you can use a folded bit of very fine wet and dry paper and just put that in the sort of groove and just sort of put that away from yourself and sort of grind that bit out or you can put some so for my strop i use tallow and carborandum powder but you can use jewelers rouge and any sort of sharpening compound put that on some thread and pull the thread through yeah and that will sharpen and get any sort of bits out in that bit of your edge beveler for the wider stuff what i like to do is get some leather that fits in the gap so it might be that you have to maybe split a bit of leather down so you get it to fit in between the gap or you can use some card and wrap some sort of wet and dry around that as well or you can put some of your sharpening compound on it and then just sort of work the blade from the top side yeah it's a bit hard to explain without showing you but (laughs) just keeping it so you got your tool and you just sort of pulling it through it because you don't want to sort of shape it or anything and accidentally change the shape of the cutting edge yeah how long how long does it take until um you go to the uh like stone like how how long can you like do it on leather like strop i mean until you have to go to sharpening stone okay it depends on the condition of your tool really um so i generally would strop mine usually between projects okay and if you can keep it like that then it you don't need to to go to like a real harsh wet and dry or an oil stain so if i get like a little dink in the blade or a little chip in it that's when i will go to like an oil stone or sort of some harder sort of polishing compound and that to to get rid of them and then you would work it your way down again then through the grits to like a real fine like 1000 grit to just real polish it off yeah once you've got the shape of it generally if you strop it every day just quickly it doesn't need to be a lot of time just give it a few strops either side then that's all you'll need really yeah okay yeah because my french edger i put like like a piece of bridal leather on like that fits in the blade and just sort of strop it yeah like that yeah, yeah, so yeah, like like that, but you can also, if you've got a polishing compound, you can put that on it as well, just yeah. smell of that on the edge of yeah. it and sort of pull that through. Yeah. Wow, okay. You can't do it with disposable blades, though? You can sharpen disposable blades, yeah, if you okay. wanted to. Okay. Traditional tools compared to, like, modern tools. So... You know, you can get, like, a skiver, like, the skiving knife, like, you'd see one. That yeah. They sell. Whereas then you've got, like, the knife that you use is sort of like a, you can skive, you can cut. Yeah. Is it, is there, like, pros to, because I know with, like, the half moon one, is there even a name for that? It's not called. I think it's in the salary belt. I think it's called a round knife. Yeah, that one. You can do, like, three things with it. You can... Yeah, so, I mean, there are knives that do lots of different things. Like, my friend Izzy uses a... Um, she uses a French bridal maker's knife, which just is it's a very scary-looking thing. Um, and I never got along with it because it was quite big. But you can... Like, each knife will have either a specialty or it can be used to do a few different things. Yeah. So... 
I use my um, Sadler's sort of head knife for pretty much everything because that's what I've learned. Yeah. And sort of coming up that way where it was just like, okay, well, we've got one knife and this is what we need to do. You would, you can learn to do it and use it for different things. The more leather craft side of it and the more I sort of get into that, the more I see there's more, more specialist tools. So you would have one knife for just cutting things and one knife for skiving things. So, I mean, I think they've all got their pros and, and cons and it's just learning what you like and yeah. what you like to use over another. I mean, there are some tools like a sort of like a skiving knife would be better for sort of skiving smaller items, I would say, if you were hand skiving something to do a turned edge then I would say that a special specialist skiving knife would be a lot better than using like a head knife because that's what it's made to do. Yeah, okay. Um, you could get through it with a head knife, but I think having the specialist too, if you've got that as an option, would probably be your better one to go for because that's what it's for. It's a skiving knife. Yeah. Um. But it is, I mean, it's what you're used to, really, and what you like to use. That's why for a lot of my videos, I will just use my head knife because I've always used the head knife and I know, I know, I know I can just use it. And I can get it to do exactly what I want it to do yeah. because I that's what I've used for the last, like, almost 13 years. So, Is it easy to push with that knife? Like, if you're, or is it more, like, when you cut, you cut forward, you don't really cut back? Yeah. Yeah, so I find, like I said, I'm used to it. I've used it for a long time. So it depends on your cutting surface. So if you were cutting, like, uh, just a straight edge, it's fine to cut onto, like, one of those cutting boards. But if you were skiving with a head knife or with any knife, really, I would skive it onto something else. So I've yeah. got a, I've got a tile. I think it's, like, a granite tile that I just got that I would skive onto rather than skiving it onto my cutting board and then if i'm cutting corners like if i was going to cut like an egg point which is what you'll see a lot on my belts or collars i like the rounded ends um i like to do that on a bit of wood because i can put the blade into the wood and then fold my leather around it or like pull my leather around to make the cut and keep the knife where yeah. it is yeah okay oh yeah so actually um, this was a probably more personal one for me so i got the smaller appy pricking irons yeah compared to the bigger ones is there a huge difference between the two or just one's cheaper than the other um yeah okay so there are a few differences and it's just so the smaller ones are great and i do actually have two sets of their the oblique their sort of diamond ones i've got a five mil set and a three mil set um because i find on some leather it's easier for me to see it if it's the diamond one than if it's the um like a normal pricking iron and because they're not the most expensive thing i was just like well for this one project that i had i was like well i just get them because that's what i want it to be i need it to go all the way through and so that works well for me that way but i mean the only real difference is obviously so in the cheaper set in the oblique set you get four you get like a one tooth, a two tooth, I think, I know, like a four 
and a six, something like that. So you get four in the oblique set and then three in the like pricking iron set or the smaller one. And then sort of compare that to the bigger, more expensive set is you only get the two, you get a one inch one and a two tooth one. So if you want sort of more sort of variety of sizes in the smaller set is absolutely fine. It's just sort of like a size difference thing. There's a lot more steel in the bigger set than there is in the smaller set. Yeah. And that's the that's the real sort of difference is that if you've got really big hands, you're gonna struggle with the smaller set. Like I've got I've got some really small hands, so like I can use each set quite easily. But I mean you can see if you have like them in your hands, you can feel like there is a difference in quality difference between the steels because the one has just got so much more steel in it than the smaller set. Yeah. But they are both really very good. And if you're getting into it, if I was getting into it again, I would have loved to have had that option. Um, I When I was sort of getting into it and getting my own tools, we didn't have sort of the option of getting like a cheaper set like that. I've got my set that I have that I brought when I was doing my training and sort of going up from there was um, all half inches because that was the only ones that I could afford. Yeah. And I didn't get a one inch seven um, iron until I started doing all my dog collars up here. And I started out just stitch marking like a padded dog collar that was fully padded with a half inch sort of stitch marker. It took so long to do. So I should probably get something a bit bigger. Um, And then when those irons came out, like they're big ones, I sort of measured them to do that. So to do a review video on them and I paid for them myself yeah. and I'm the ones that I didn't end up keeping I sent back and got refunded for but yeah I mean I paid for them myself and I love them yeah and even the smaller sets that I've got you know I've, I've paid for them and I they do they are really great especially if you're getting like into it to start with those small sets are just great because they're quite inexpensive I think they're about 21 24 pound excluding VAT something like that and so obviously the biggest set is a lot more expensive but if you're doing it and you really you know you're going to do it all the time and you have larger hands and you know you're going to use them the biggest set is probably the better one to go for yeah yeah when I when I um well what I was using like the stitching chisels originally and I was snapping teeth, like, because you, like, so I was just using, like, two-prong, like, yeah. all the way through, and because and I was in that stage where I liked, like, the, the close, I was trying to figure out which type of one to use, and because I like the, the tighter stitch compared to the yeah. wider stitch, and then I saw that video that you did on the Abbey Pricking Irons, and then I watched, like, another review on it, and then I bought them, and, yeah, it's, like, so little, it's, like, my hands are so big, it's, like, so little, but... They, they, they were so, like, for the the price and to be able to stitch it, like, dun, yeah. dun, dun. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. It was, like, done in... Yeah. Um, yeah, they are they're actually, yeah, for, for the price and the size, they are actually very good quality. Yeah. I think you do get some which are similar, uh, but the steel is not as good, which that, that would lead to that breaking more. But those little Abbey ones are really good. And, you know, if you are stitching all the way through, you can always put leather underneath it and stitch mark it into another bit of scrap leather rather than into, like, a wooden bench to get them 
so that will protect the teeth a bit more. Yeah. But yeah, they are um, even if because I found that even if you just hold the, just where like the the base, not like the yeah, stick, but the the down down the bottom. That even though my hands are quite big, that sort of helps. Yeah. So it was. So yeah, so there's not there's not a difference in in the sizes of the teeth between the two. There's no, just the so same, the, just the just the, the size handles. of the physical iron. Okay, that's good. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, because I'd like to get those bigger ones in the future, but the little little ones are doing fine. Like the only thing is yeah. is wrong with them is that they're just they're just too small. But well, they're not too small, yeah. but. Yeah. I guess because you had little hands on the video, it looked like... I know, yeah. And then I when I got them, it's like... normal-sized hands. These are so tiny. <laughs> but no, they're, they're fine. I, I, I use them. Actually, so last question would be photography. Tips for non-photographers. Because I struggle with my photography. <laughs> like... Yeah. It's... it's uh, Yeah, what tips would you give? I do like photography and... I've been doing sort of photography for quite a while and I do actually have a side business which is photography so I do know more about it and I do have the cameras for it but a lot of it is sort of you're staging for it where you're taking your photo to and the light they're the most important things and the well light is really important if you're in a really badly lit environment there's not much you can do to make that photo look good but so what I would, what I like to do, so I've got like a little stage that I call it. So all my photos, and if you go on my Instagram and you see any of my photos of my work, they're all very similar. So um, I bought an apple crate, like an old apple box on Etsy, and I put everything in there. So the background is always the same. It's a real rustic wooden thing because I like the textures. So you're doing leather craft, you want like some something nice to like go with it so oh my voice is going hang on (laughs) is that better yeah there we go voice is back so yeah so because with leather you want to create some nice textures to go with it so wood is quite a natural product as well so it matches with the leather yeah so I've got it's like a light wooden one you can get all sorts of colors but having like a nice sort of background bit where all your pictures can go is really good and then I'm putting some props in so you've got your nice textured background but it doesn't really give any context to your product as to you know how you know you've made it so I put in some of my craft tools with it so I usually have my, my edge tools in the background I'll put my stitching irons in there I've got like threads and stuff that I'll put in it and just like try and build like a nice scene and yeah. then you put your product whatever it is sort of right at the front of your scene and if you can you want to use sort of like a nice even light so if you can set up by a window that's great or if you're outside, you want to be in a nice shaded area where there's no direct harsh sunlight on it. And um, so with like, even with your phones and that now, if you can put your products by nice soft light, so like if it's really sunny, try and pick a south facing window where you're not getting direct sunlight. I shared yeah. it. Hang on. Is it the same in Australia? Yeah. yeah. No, it would be, wouldn't it? Right. So like the sun 
goes Hang from... on, a north-facing window. <laughs> yeah, because on your video you said north-facing window, and because I, I don't I have any... north, because yeah. the sun comes from the south. Yeah, I'm getting my north and south muddled up, aren't I? You want to put it in a shady window. <laughs> Wait, so the it's from the north side? So, like so yeah, north... so... Um... Everyone in the UK wants like a south-facing garden because that's what gets the most sun. So yeah, so you want it in the north. So I don't know. Oh, it would be reverse for us because like north is <laughs> behind me and the sun like rises, like go would go like that. Good question. I've never really thought about it. So what our sun rises in the east and sets in the west. Yeah, same. Yeah, same. Yeah. But like, I think I'm probably you... just getting muddled up in my. Um. But like in winter, the the <clears> sun will like it will rise in the east, but it will like it will like go around north, like it will be on the north mm. side and then set. Is yours on the opposite side? Like, where well, so it's revert? It's wait, it'd be revert. Yes, yeah, reverse then, because that's south towards my window. And yeah. When the sun sets, it comes through. Mm. But during the yeah, so day... the sun's yeah, the sun is always on the front of the house. Doesn't matter if it's sun, if it's winter or summer. The front sort of south facing sun is what gets all the light. Yeah, yeah. So it's reversing. Okay, that's good because like where the sh where the the window is like from the shed faces south. So like when you're like you need a north south. You needed a north window. It's like no, I don't have like a north window. Uh, yeah, you need the window that's not that's not in direct sunlight. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. Okay, yeah. oh that's cool. I learned something because do your like sinks go different to us? Like I remember I saw like a uh, video on YouTube I... on the equator, and he like goes to like one. Uh... There's like a and he it goes like the opposite way, and then he goes to like the other crosses the equator and goes yeah. like, the opposite way. I don't really pay much attention to how the thing empties out. <laughs> I can go and try it if you want. <laughs> oh, that's all right. So thanks for coming on, Joe. I really appreciate it. That's all right. Thank you for having me.